Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science seduce your brain. I'm Julianne Popple. On this edition, we'll feature frozen memories and sex tentacles. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen. Possessing a more docile personality may be the key to saving the Tassie devil from extinction. Tasmanian devils are under threat from devil facial tumour disease, a contagious cancer which is believed to be transferred by direct inoculation of tumour cells when the devils bite each other. Since its first detection in northeastern Tasmania, DFTD has killed over 100,000 individuals and has reduced the wild population by over 85%. Researchers from the University of Tasmania wish to determine whether catching the disease could be predicted by biting frequency. To do so, they set up devil traps at two sites for 10-day periods every three months between 2006 and 2010. Although it was previously believed that those who were bitten more frequently were more likely to contract the disease, the study, published in the Journal of Animal Ecology, found the opposite. A result which was surprising to lead author Dr. Rodrigo Hamid. In most infectious diseases, there are so-called superspreaders, a few individuals responsible for most transmission events. But we found the more aggressive devils, rather than being superspreaders, are super receivers. The study also found that the majority of tumours were present in the devil's mouths, and so suggests the results are due to the more aggressive devils becoming infected when they bite more subordinate individuals. At present, there is no cure or treatment, so current research is focused on the interaction between the disease and the host, which, according to Hamid, is a co-evolutionary race. Selective pressures will exist for both species to best ensure survival. This potentially means selective pressures could eventually favour devils with a shy personality, and a management strategy may lie in the identification and removal of aggressive individuals, which are the superspreaders. Although, with that said, sexual selection would also need to be considered. Biting behaviour is associated with mating season, and aggressive individuals are more likely to have a higher paternity rate. As far as the survival of the tumour is concerned, Hamid expects the tumour to increase their transmission would select for more aggressive devils. He also expects the disease to become less virulent, since if the devils become extinct, the tumour would become extinct with them. With some devils in the population of Cradle Mountain surviving longer, this already may be happening. 
So that's really interesting that he was expecting that the disease would become less virulent. But from what I was saying, uh, what I was talking with Beata Uivari from the previous week's show, she was indicating that, in fact, the, her, the evidence of her research is pointing to, they, they haven't got exact proof of this yet, but pointing to it becoming more virulent at the moment. Mm-hmm. And the decrease in biting behaviour seems unlikely since it's such a deeply ingrained aspect of the devil's biology that it's you know part of their mating behaviour, they bite each other. In a situation where size can make a difference, it may be useful to develop a Napoleon complex. Similarly to seahorses and some varieties of birds, it is the male Australian desert goby that provides the parental care, using his pectoral fins to to keep the eggs oxygenated and aggressively defending his nest against intruders. A study led by Dr Andreas Swenson of Linnaeus University in Switzerland in collaboration with Monash University and the University of Turku, found that, in comparison, smaller nesting males were more aggressive, attacking sooner and with greater intensity. This strategy, or game model, has been termed the Napoleon Complex, after the French general Napoleon Bonaparte, who is believed to have possessed an aggressive personality to compensate for his short stature. Study co-author Dr. Bob Wong believes that small males benefit by striking first since they do not give away their size disadvantage. We found that aggression of males was not affected by the presence of females and perceived mating opportunities or larger male intruders. Instead, their their aggression was related to their size. In particular, Smaller males attack sooner and with greater intensity in comparison to larger males, suggesting that nesting desert goby males use routine rather than conditional strategies for initiating aggression. This strategy, according to Swenson, would be successful should the intruders flee rather than retaliate in response. The research was presented at the International Behavioural Ecology Congress in Sweden in August Rhodes is one of the directors of the Neural Archives Foundation. He collects brains and freezes them in hopes that future historians will be able to read their frozen memories. Ian Wolfe spoke to him at the Sydney Futurists Meetup at the Spanish Club. The Neural Archives started as a result of um, a couple of cryonicists, myself and uh, my colleague James from Melbourne, who decided that as opposed to what cryonics is trying to achieve in terms of freezing people so that they can be revived. There is a whole bunch of people that are uninterested in the prospect of a future revival, but they're unhappy about the situation where they they spend 70 or 80 years 
on earth accumulating all this history and memories and experiences expertise and then it all just disappears when they die and so the whole concept of neural archives is that we preserve that neural tissue in the expectation that there'll be a time in the future when all those memories and experiences and everything can be extracted because we view that as just stored information in the structure of the neural architecture and we think that that should be eventually recoverable and in fact there's research work you know in various places that suggests that that will be the case so at the moment people can donate their brains after death to be frozen that's true that we do call them donors and they are donating their tissue because it, the neural tissue does actually become the property of the neural archives foundation even though it's a non-profit organization although we do keep that tissue indefinitely um, either for the benefit of uh, posterity generally or for the benefit of descendants of that of that person in terms of the information that's stored there and they are donors but of course they do they, there is also a cash donation to pay for the storage costs even though it's a non-profit organization right so when they donate their brain they also donate usually an agreed upon sum to that's help right yeah at the moment it's going. thirty thousand dollars but the, because interest rates are so low at the moment that may actually need to increase to thirty five thousand we'll see in the next three to six months if it needs to be increased or not and so the plan is that these brains will have the information read from them so the idea is that you freeze the brains so that at some point when the technology gets a little bit better we'll be able to read the information of people's life experience and know something about the historical period that they lived in that's right i mean it, it's sort of like the extreme example of what what people do in terms of oral histories in, instead of recording the information orally that people can actually transfer from their brains to their mouths we're actually storing the whole brain and so in theory we should be able to recover all the information that's in there but there's also the expectation that we should be able to transform that information into what it looks like in, t in terms of the person's internal view of the world. So hopefully we should be able to turn things into visual memories, auditory memories, taste memories. Which is amazing. So it you should, could... We should be able to. So yeah. future historians might be able to see what life was like in the 20th and yeah. 21st century. Well, it won't, be, it won't be like a, um, a Hollywood movie in that sense because people don't view things that way. I mean, the visual field that people look at is, is detailed in the centre but it's very blurry and people don't recognise that that's the case but it's it's very detailed in the middle of, of what they're looking at exactly but all around the edges the brain fills in all the patterns so it remains to be seen what sort of video we would get out of it but, but that's the general idea yeah. So what ways will people be getting information from the frozen brains? Um, we expect that at some at the moment there's um, only um, uh, a number of um, MRIs that you can do to to increase the resolution, you know, from different angles and that that sort of thing. But as technology advances, then we we think that within ten or twenty years there'll be a, enough resolution on things like MRIs to get down to the sort of level that we need to to be able to map map the complete architecture. Um, there is the possibility that we could do a destructive scan at some stage in the future by slicing through the frozen brain or, or and using some other sort of resolution technique. Ideally what you want is some sort of non-destructive method where you can actually 
get all the information out and still have the, the solid or frozen brain there in case, you, in case you need to go back to it for more information. Now, I know it's quite speculative, but is there any danger that people could wake up, that enough of them could be recovered that they might in be fact, revived? In fact, that's um, the desire of some of the people that have already had their brains frozen. Uh, for one reason or another, some, some of these people were interested in cryonics and, and for one reason or another they couldn't either make it to the US or they couldn't get organised here and they just decided to have their brain preserved instead. And they have explicitly left instructions that that's what they want to happen. And so that once the technology is available to extract that information and restore it either into a new biological body or a synthetic body or a virtual body, then that's what they want to happen. But um, other people just want to have that information stored for posterity as a historical record, which is in itself very valuable from our point of view. Extreme history. Yeah, it is. Extreme moral record. Yeah. I mean, the the thing is that um, these aren't reliable records. You know, there's lots of research around to show that people's uh, memories of particular situations are not 100%. But if you're doing enough of these, then you can form a a pretty good picture of what a particular situation was like. So I remember when I first heard about John Kennedy being shot. Now, if you did a few thousand of those memories, you would get a pretty good picture of what that particular day was like when mm. everyone heard it, or when Whitlam was sacked, yes. sacked for example. So um, there is um, good reason for doing it, but of course they're, they're more public sort of memories, but as well as that you've got all those personal memories and family and historical things. So it is a valuable resource for those people's descendants and for posterity in, in, in the public in general. Is, are there any privacy issues about the private memories? There certainly is. Um, we, we encourage people to actually put in writing their general feelings about the situation because obviously if memories are recoverable, there's, there's potentially room for recovering memories that that person won't want other people to know about. And um, so that they can ex- they can write down all those sorts of instructions and they can say, for example, they don't want any of that information to be made public before 50 years or whatever it is or before all the rest or everyone that knew them has died or you know whatever whatever sort of scenarios they like they can they can describe it they might say that it's only for the um, benefit of direct descendants and not to be made publicly generally publicly available or something like that so we, we, we just we just abide by whatever instructions that they've left at the time of the, at the time that they've donated their neural tissue and where are the neural archive foundation based the the model that we've got for neural archives is that it's not unlike the cryonics organizations we don't do everything ourselves and basically get our hands dirty. We basically subcontract all the different aspects of the whole operation to different uh, situations. So we deal with um, legal people, for example, we deal with medical pathologists, and we also make use of commercial cryogenic storage facilities for the actual storage of the neural tissue. So are people stored in Australia at the moment? All the people currently at, at the moment, uh, Neural Archives is set up to be an international organisation, but at the moment all the people that have made use of the organisation are Australian and they are, all those tissues are stored in Australia at the moment. 
Where in Australia are they stored? Well, I can tell you it's in Sydney, but we're, okay. for, that, for security reasons, we don't go into no. details because we, we make clear that we will make use of whatever cryogenic storage facility is appropriate at the time. It may be that, for example, sometime in the future, some of these things will be need, need to be moved from one organisation to another. But for security reasons, we don't let on the actual numbers that we've got. Um, it's greater than zero and we've been doing this for some years now and uh, the, the location of the, the actual facility is in Sydney at the moment but it, it could very well be anywhere in New South Wales or, so if, or Australia for that matter. So if people want to find out more about the Neural Archive Foundation, where do they look? The easiest place is just to go straight to the website which is Neural Archives Foundation, one word, dot org and um, it's in the process of being redeveloped, but if they want to make contact with us, they can get back to us through that site. Terrific. Well, Philip Rhodes, thank you very much. No worries. Thank you. That was Philip Rhodes, a director of the Neural Archive Foundation, whose mission is to preserve the brains of donors so that their memories can be read by future historians. You can find out more at www.neuralarchivesfoundation.org. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. We have the absolute privilege of welcoming back the illustrious Dr James Gilbert into our studios. With Dr Gilbert, we've previously talked about a number of colourful topics from assassin bugs, who care, to Pokemon thrips and giant cricket testicles. So we've already established that the humble bush cricket has huge testicles, but there's even more to this story of cricket romance. Tell me, James, what are sex tentacles? (laughs) Hi. Okay, well, um, unlike the uh, titillators that we were talking about in our last episode, that <clears throat> sex tentacles is not actually a technical term, sadly. Um, the real thing, I'm, the real things I'm talking about are, are uh, the circe, which is something that lots of insects have, and it's a pair of kind of tentacular-style appendages at the base of the abdomen. Um, if you ever had any particular reason to look very closely at a cockroach, you'll notice that it has two um, belar-type things at the end of its abdomen, and it uses those for sensory stuff, like uh, if you approach it, it'll detect the wind movements and, and run off, and that's what they use their Cersei for. But um, in bush crickets, <coughs> in bush crickets, the Cersei appear to be used for sex, um, which is which is really exciting and interesting. Um, bush cricket sex is not at all what we would consider normal. Um, what happens, um, if, what normal means to a bush cricket is that the female will mount the male, which is quite unusual, and then he will raise his abdomen and use these Cersei, these tentacles, to, to grasp the end of her abdomen. And then, so, they, so they'll um, kind of lock together like that, and then he will transfer all his sperm at once, which is quite odd for... Um, uh, odd for insects and odd for any animal really he delivers his sperm in a packet rather than kind of taking a while to pump it all in he delivers it in a packet and the packet is surrounded um in remember this is this is normal for bush crickets the sperm is surrounded by a giant blob of white nutritious proteinaceous glue and and that that kind of latches onto the female and sometimes this can be up to 40 percent of the male's body weight in 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 glue and um this the female has to eat this if she's going to um mate again so she is stuck there 
kind of eating through this blob of glue. So he basically plugs her at the other end. Exactly. He, he plugs, and, and there's, well, this, is, this is actually very interesting because it's allowing us to answer a big question about sex in the animal kingdom, which is how much of the weirdo behaviour we see is, is to do with harmonious relationships between males and females. How much of it is courtship? How much of it is serving to further both the male and the female's interest? And how much of it is to do with conflict? How much is the male trying to manipulate the female and how much is the female trying to trying to get away and mate with other males? Um, and in this case, the, that, that great blob of glue that's called a spermatophylax could be a nutritious... Uh, lump of protein that the female has to eat or can can get nutrients for and that would be a less conflict ridden explanation or it could be kind of a, a mass of cheap stuff that she has to eat through to get um, in, in order to be able to mate again and the male doesn't want her to mate again obviously. So my co-author who's an expert on these animals noticed that in some species they will remain in copulation after the sperm packet has been transferred for ages and ages and sometimes up to seven hours and the male is kind of dragged around by the female in this kind of bizarre uh, sexual position that we've dubbed the bucking bronco. Um, and um, he appears to be kind of using his, these tentacles, Circe, to just hold on for dear life, basically. So, so why would, this may seem like a stupid question, but why does the male want to mate for so long and hang on for so long? Cool, yeah, that that's that's, gets to the very heart of this question. We made the hypothesis that these Circe are enabling the male to kind of be the plug. Instead of making a, a giant plug of glue, he kind of leaves himself attached. Um, and, and instead of doing, instead of uh, uh, investing all that energy in, in producing all that protein, he just remains copulating for ages. And it makes sense, if this is something born of conflict, that the female would not want that to happen and that she would try to shake him off if if that were the case. And so what we looked for is evidence of conflict in the association. Because the female obviously wants her unorthodoxly delivered meal. Yes, exactly. So uh, so the, the female's going to want to either, she's going to want to go and mate again with another male to, to get, you know, like a range of good genes, or potentially she might want to eat the sperm itself. Like she, she might have other uses for the sperm other than fertilising eggs. The male definitely wants his sperm to be the ones that fertilise her eggs she doesn't necessarily want that and so she may try to eat them instead and so he wants to protect his his sperm and so he'll want to hang on um, and and she'll want to to get him off so for him direct delivery is the best exactly the yes. best <clears throat> route right so what we found was that the duration of this copulation the length of time they spent having sex after this packet of sperm is delivered is actually negatively correlated with the size of that spermatophore the, the size of the big blob of glue that the males transfer so where they're spending ages having sex they're not transferring the big the big um, blob of glue and also where you get these great prolonged bouts of, of copulation, the Circe are modified into these weird shapes. Like, so, so you've got all sorts of different modifications. You've got spiny piercing claws. You've got ones that are kind of rope-like, really, really properly like you tentacles. You mentioned some that looked a little bit like handcuffs. Yep. Is this true? <laughs> there's, there's, one, there's a, uh, a pair which is shaped just like handcuffs and which fit directly over the end of the female's abdomen as if he's like kind of holding her like that. Um, 
and what, what's interesting about these modified is also like a pair that look basically like a bear trap, which is like several spines all pointing in different directions that are used to basically clasp, clasp the female. And these Circe have stopped engaging with, so in the normal version of bush cricket sex, mm. the male Circe engage with special little pits on the female. There's not very much conflict going on because the female has special structures for him to grasp onto and, and hold. And she doesn't appear to have much of a problem with that. But we found that where that copulation is prolonged, the male is stopped engaging with those bits of the female. And in fact, he's just kind of piercing her cuticle or he's tying her like with the rope like ones. He actually physically ties her to him by by kind of twisting them like kind of like one of those bread um, um, wire things you use to close bread with. He wraps them around and then twists them. And so she can't get away. Then there's the handcuff ones which fit over the end. And as you'd predict, where that's happening, the female tries to resist. She kind of jiggles around and wanders around and shakes and tries to shake him off. And so this is very clearly evidence of sexual conflict. Battle over... of the sexes. Yes, exactly. Except, I mean, it's not it really, it's not, um, it's not even quite as simple as that because there are, there's a, a small camp of uh, ecologists who are trying to investigate the idea that maybe it's actually in the female's interest to make it really difficult for the male to transfer his sperm like that because if she makes it really difficult then only the very best males will win like forcing the knight to go on an errand to the ends of the earth for example you know only the really good ones are going to make it so she might be screening out the best males well i guess it's not quite the romantic story i had envisaged but um <laughs> It's certainly been educational. Thanks very much, James. Thanks very much. That was James Gilbert, a postdoctoral researcher from the University of Sydney. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. Do you have a science question that's bugging you? Email your science questions and stories to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com and our scientists will do our best to find the answer and feature it on a future episode. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you live elsewhere and have a story you would like to contribute, send us an email on diffusion at 2ser.com. For further information on this week's show, visit our blog at www.2ser.com slash shows slash diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Therese Chen and Ian Wolfe. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next time on Diffusion Science Radio. It's a scientific fact A scientific fact It has to be correct It has to be exact Because it is, because it is a scientific fact It's a scientific fact That our high and low tides Are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon It's been proven to be true Like one and one are two It's checked and double checked a fact that can be backed Because it is, because it is a scientific fact It's a scientific fact That there are belts of radiation in outer space Which are a hazard for future space flyers to overcome It's a scientific fact A scientific fact It has to be correct 
It has to be exact. Because it is, because it is a scientific.